Welcome, gentlemen. I'm here with Greg Henriquez and Lehman Pascal, two of my favorite interlocutors on the integral stage. And, and happy Sunday. I guess this is our church for today. Right. Um, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so if this uh, conversation unfolds according to our satisfaction, then this may be the first in a series of dialogues exploring what we might call a deep or integral or Sophianic naturalism. And by that, I mean a, a naturalism that embraces and opens the way for a coherent naturalistic cultivation of the higher transformative human potentials that have usually been addressed by our mystical and religious traditions and the social eudaimonistic potentials that have usually been the province of uh, certain political and uh, religious traditions. About a year and a half ago on the integral stage, we did a Wheel of Perspectives video on sacred naturalism. So I'm considering this to be kind of an extension of that. On Greg's side, uh, particularly for our talk today, I understand he's gonna walk us through the tree, coin, and garden components of his model to present uh, a Utah vision of sacred or Sophianic naturalism. And as part of that, I think we're also going to touch on a you know, the place of consciousness in a naturalistic account of, of the cosmos and of existence. Trying to frame that as naturalistically as possible and considering whether maybe it's an emergentist model or a panpsychic one, or maybe, you know, in mm -hmm. prepositional adjacent fashion, mm -hmm. some kind of dancing and lighting up of the between. Total. So, Greg, would you like to offer your own introduction here? Absolutely. Hey, it's great to see you guys. Uh, um, I love being with you guys. So, uh, you know, so and then uh, basically, um, you know, uh, the idea of a sacred naturalism, uh, I'll just say it here in, in the first, certainly we'll see how it unfolds, but I sort of committed to the first 25 episodes or 30 episodes of you talking with Greg would be framed around the idea of being in search uh, of a coherent naturalistic ontology. Uh, that could revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. Uh, and since that's the ethos and the exploration and the vision and the mission uh, of the podcast or the, the weave that ties it together, well, you know, that aligns pretty well as far as I can see with the sacred naturalism. Uh, I did watch that series. Uh, I love that concept uh, and I love uh, jamming with you guys today and riffing off of it uh, and also sharing with you and getting your take on uh, the tree coin and garden, which has been uh, a frame I've had, but recently has become salient. I was listening to Bernardo Castro and John Berbeke uh, on theories of everything, Kirk Jamungle's theories of everything, and their debate on naturalism and idealism. Uh, and uh, I was like, hey, I want to talk to Bruce and, and Lehman about this stuff. So here we are. <laughs> great. Yeah, I watched that same Jamungle video. It was great. I thought, um... John's articulation of uh, explanatory weak emergence was really good. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, I guess to start, uh, I'll give a little bit of my personal uh, overview or take both on the sacred naturalist part and on, like Bruce was saying, the where does consciousness fit into this part? Nice. For me, sacred naturalism, I guess it's got two reciprocal aspects. One is naturalizing the sacred and one is sacralizing the natural. Beautiful. So naturalizing the sacred means um, thinking of it in a way that's trans-traditional, that's post-metaphysical or updated minimally metaphysical, yep. uh, description of the nature and efficacy of uh, spiritual practice and numinous experience 
in a way that accords with an expanded scientific naturalist worldview. And then on the other hand, sacralizing the natural uh, consists of personal and cultural setting up of um, an edifying organization and appreciation of science, evolution, and ecology and embodiment as uh, privileged sacred components right. in an overall orienting ethic, which aims at increasing the, I would say, the richness of the fidelity of human patterning to complex natural patterning, right. to sort of generate naturalness as something that's mm -hmm. distinct from the indifference of nature, and mm -hmm. to do so in a way that causes human individuals, societies, and our instruments to be increasingly capable of and clear about how to participatorily amplify the actual actualization of a desirable set of naturalness producing architectures. Uh, <laughs> I'm, clearly, I'm, saying this, I'm saying this the way I say it to myself. I'm not doing yeah, this. No, is not the public no. promo part. You know, actually, as far as I'm concerned, we're done, Layman. All right, carry it off. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, on the consciousness side, I guess like it's really hard for me to put my view in any of the categories. <laughs> it overlaps a bunch of them. I guess I would say it's because I had to a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have personal experience of things like, oh, universal consciousness. But what do I make of that experience? Right. Right. So I would say that higher, deeper and more universal phenomenological expressions of personal or hyperpersonal consciousness are mm -hmm. extensions and mixtures of the successful achievement of adult waking state consciousness which stands in a long chain of evolutionary amplifications of organized subjective affect, right. which recedes toward an infinitesimal vanishing point. Uh, and that vanishing point of, is never reached because mm. for me, the structure of infinitesimal vanishing is part of the adjacency metaphysics of a gotcha. non-dimensional relational syntax or metaphysics mm -hmm. that encodes the primitive conditions for any world, which includes mm. the primitive preconditions that are arranged in the production of emergent consciousness later. So right. in that sense, we can say it goes all the way down, right. um, but it really goes all the way down in a way that also doesn't count as being there. <laughs> uh, uh, that's my take. A little, little both-and action? I, can go with that. <laughs> I guess maybe I can jump in because I want to give the bulk of our time to exploring Greg's view. So I'll just jump in with a little framing of, of what I understand by, you know, sacred naturalism or what I'm calling, at least for the moment, uh, Sophianic naturalism. I was just mm. thinking about a naturalism that uh, aligns with the pursuit of wisdom and, and human depth potentials, um, sentient, you know, uh, sapient being depth, depth potentials, um, and I, as I mentioned to you before we started talking, I also haven't really prepared anything in a formal way. So I want to speak just from, you know, my own mm -hmm. sense of these things and how I sit with them for, you know, I've moved in and out of different religious traditions. Um, and I've never really fully bought into the, the full metaphysical, you know, religious pictures of those traditions, but I found a lot of benefit in them. Um, so I'm pretty comfortable with a generally naturalistic orientation that really post-metaphysically wants to enfold, uh, you know, 
the different gifts of, of the pre-modern traditions in terms of cultivation of wisdom and human depth potential. And, you know, also reciprocal relationality with the natural world in a way that uh, is, is kind of more mindful of our deep participation in the larger living systems of the world. A long time ago, I, I think back when I was living in the desert Southwest in Arizona, I started studying the Diné Bahane, and that is the Navajo or Diné um, creation story. And it's a beautiful long poem narrating, you know, the beginnings of the cosmos and the emergence of the, you know, the holy people and the, the different kind of beings. And it's both deep and profound and also hilarious and raunchy. You know, the, the, the coyote and uh, roadrunner cartoon comes out of some of those uh, early myths and they're hilarious, you know, the kind of the, the sexual antics that Coyote gets up to. Um, but in reading that uh, account, you know, that inspiring account of the origins of, of the universe, back then I was inspired. I thought, I want to do something like that with our current understanding mm -hmm. of the world afforded to us by science. Um, how can we tell this story that kind of deeply participatorily involves us in this whole unfolding magnificent emergence of, of, of the world in all of its layers, you know, and that's a good interface with you talk and the, and the tree of knowledge in that there's the first world, second world, third world, fourth world. There's these emerging layers of existence in, yep. in, that, in that broad, you know, indigenous vision. So I think we have our own version of that. And later on, I discovered uh, the work of people like, you know, Thomas Berry and Brian mm -hmm. Swim, mm -hmm. um, Michael Dowd, and all of them, Connie mm -hmm. Barlow, all right. of them speaking in different ways about our current cosmological picture. And I like Brian Swim's question, which is, can science be delivered in a way that stirs the soul? Yes. And to me, that's, that's a really beautiful thing. I think we have to be careful about religionizing science to make it yeah. into an ism. We know, I, I don't think any of us here want that, mm -hmm. but I think there's a, a, you know, a deep openness to, you know, awe and, and appreciation of the natural world and its depths and its mystery and its its receding, infinitely receding potentials um, that I, I think we can align with and and recognize as as sources of nourishment for us right. and 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 resources for wisdom perspectives, allowing us to take deep time view of the unfolding of of creation and and, and mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I think. That's very powerful. For the the place of consciousness, uh, I'm perfectly comfortable with an emergentist view. Um, I think you know, for for living well now as human beings on the planet, it doesn't really matter if consciousness, in some panpsychic way, goes all the way down or emerges later. What matters is, you know, how we engage it and and work with it now. Um, 
from my own side, looking at the different arguments, I've continually been, you know, part of it might be how it's framed, you know, um, from the outset. Uh, mm-hmm. But for me, the hard problem in most emergentist accounts that I've read hasn't really been solved. It, mm-hmm. What I see is increasing explanations of, of recursivity of processes mm-hmm. and, and, you know, kind of like complexification of, of informational systems. But there's no point along the way that it strikes me that any of that has to become experiential or feeling. Um, it, you know, there's a leap there that, that has not accounted for. And so there are different ways to handle that. One is just to say, however far down we go, there is a minimal you know, feeling quality uh, to, to even any energetic event. Mm-hmm. And that those naturally build and amplify and autopoetic systems are amplifying systems, which basically can both increase the, you know, the density of inter, you know, of connections of, of, of systems and their informational flow and magnify, you know, illuminate uh, the experiential possibilities of that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. emergentist account can, can follow that. So that's, I hold that, but I hold it lightly. Yeah. Another that I appreciate, and this would be the last thing I say here, I think, is you know maybe uh, Varela's methodological dissolution of the problem, yep. where basically he just says instead of you know trying to turn consciousness into you know a naturalized object, let's mm-hmm. just recognize that we're always situated as experiential knowers, and that this mm-hmm. is part of of the natural world, and we have two different epistemologies. Pretty much, there's the the yoga of objectivity, where we're we're basically seeking oneness with with the universe through tracking of situational invariance, right? And then the other is basically exploring more idiosyncratically the phenomenal qualities that attend you know any kind of situation and and the situatedness of the knowledge within uh, you know within any of our experimental studies. So that that's, you know, I'm also quite comfortable with that. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I believe going forward, um, our contemplative traditions and our sciences need each other in what he calls mm-hmm. a neurophenomenology. I think yes, that's going to serve us well. So those are my generally orienting remarks. And I look forward to getting into a, a lot more with both of you. Beautiful. Okay, uh, so I'll offer my orienting remarks and, and we'll see. Um, so I'm gonna, let me, I'm gonna uh, riff off of Sean, I can't remember his last name, but uh, he talked about exosystems, okay? And in, in the U- UFO alien world and higher dimensions. And I, I really like the exo term and we can create then, we'll use that frame of reference maybe to create the uh, I then want to flip that and say, talk about then in endonaturalism, okay? Uh, and so, and I'm going to then say that I am atheistic with regards to concrete personal gods, okay, that people have discovered and then know about metaphysically. Uh, I don't see good evidence for that. I'm agnostic about what's the, what's exo, okay, um, to, uh, to the, and concerned with the endo. So this parallels then uh, what natural philosophy is, is okay, there's the supernatural world, then there's the natural world. 
I am concerned then on what's the inside of the sphere relative to the outside. And I'll be agnostic about, um, you know, higher dimensions, life after death, God, aliens, although they all have different ways that we would penetrate and then relate to the um, sort of endo-naturalistic view that I have. Um, uh, I'm a synthist in many ways in the sense that I believe in the concept of God, okay? Uh, meaning that I think that it affords us as humans uh, something very, very powerful. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me in the context of my frame about what uh, caused us to go from primates to persons as justifying creatures, as needing a collective shared narrative that orients towards the good. Um, the idea of God in a, at least a liminal space in that, um, the possibility that the idea of God led to um, the building of temples, which in turn led to agriculture and maybe led to civilizations that the, that the seeking of God and the honoring of God, the concept of that drove us in, to develop in certain ways. I love that idea. Uh, so, um, so my position then is a sort of unconcerned with the endonatural view I believe that uh, I call there's a serious problem in our naturalism, okay? Serious problem, which I then identify as the enlightenment gap, okay? And what I mean by that is inside our understanding of the within naturalistic worldview, we have not at all figured out what we mean by the relationship between matter and mind. Um, that, that, that's just confused uh, in terms of, in other words, just there's a multiplicity of different elements, it shows up most obviously then in the hard problem of consciousness, which I agree with. There is, although I'm going to frame that in a couple of different ways, I think there are actually at least three different problems inside the hard problem that are not well articulated. Okay? Um, and I think it's crucial to articulate them and separate them out so we know where we are in relation. So the enlightenment gap includes this problem of what is matter mind, and it also includes the problem about what is scientific knowledge, what kind of epistemological claims does it make, and how does that relate to other knowledge like social folk knowledge and knowledge about my life, okay? Um, I don't think we're clear on that. I think the postmodern critique of modernity um, represents uh, the deconstructive, there are sophisticated deconstructive elements that demonstrate that modernity uh, the way it prays to certain kind of transcendent reasoning and, and most identified with Kant or whatever, um, or transcendent truths of science, how that fits with authority, how it fits with policy, what it means about culture, um, what it means about context, how does it contextualize its history. I think all of that stuff it's naive about. And I think the postmodern critique shows that. And, and as far as it goes, or post-structural critique or whatever, that then affords us a particular um, value that shows that limitation. So, so my point is, is that at a philosophy and science level, the philosophers coming out of the Enlightenment fail to hand us a coherent synthetic philosophy that actually makes sense out of a field of naturalism. Okay? That's obvious in the mind-body problem and in the postmodern critique. The U talk starts with a problem of psychotherapy, backs up in the problem of psychology, and then backs up into a problem of philosophy and knowledge and says, oh shit, actually, I got into a vortex of confusion Okay, that if you buy the enlightenment gap is matter mind problem and science social knowledge problem, it now makes absolute sense that there would be a problem of psychology. Like, like how the hell would you do a science of mind behavior shit? Um, if you can't say what science is and you don't know what mind is relative to matter, you can't, okay? So then that becomes a natural consequence. And then my journey um, is my argument basically is I think I figured out a way to address the enlightenment gap. 
so that it's no longer really an issue, or at least it's qualitatively shifted with a degree of clarity that then affords us a whole nother way of, of understanding and then a whole nother layer of question asking that can now be deepened in relationship to these concepts. So we're going, we're batting around in the dark. I think the UTOC brings a particular frame of reference, okay? Now, the framework, I wanna then share a few things about this frame of reference uh, that in particular have been salient for me as of late, and that's the tree coin garden formulation, okay? Uh, you talked, uh, Bruce, about different epistemologies. Uh, and basically, I would argue that there are really three epistemologies that we need to interrelate. Okay? Um, one is the modern empirical natural science view that emerges from Galileo into Newton. Um, there's certainly other scientific traditions, but the quantitative shift and experimental methodological shift uh, that occurs with the development of Newtonian physics and what we mean by science there is a unique kind of epistemology, okay? at least I believe. And I believe it affords us a particular kind of set of insights about the nature of reality that I might call a transcendent realism that would go along with like Roy Boschkar's claim. And what I mean by transcendent is it does the nature of scientific knowledge that is achieved transcends the social, cultural, contextual, imminent knowledge of other systems. So it's like actually, and that's what the tree of knowledge sort of represents science kind of coming out of culture, but then affording us the potential of a more transcendent map of reality um, that say, for example, other aliens that think deductively um, may well come to atomic matter of the world. That may very well be the case that they have access to essentially a perfectly aligned picture of, hey, yeah, there are hydrogen atoms, whatever. And of course, they would call them, but we may be able to just line up our theories of physics across species and context. If that's the case, uh, then I would argue, yeah, we've transcended our human epistemological constraints and afforded us a transcendent realist view of nature, if that to whatever extent. If it is the case that other aliens see the world differently and their theory of the physical world is radically different than ours, then, then the epistemological container effect, a more Kantian view that actually the only we'd have access to is phenomenology, the categories of mind are imprisoning us in some ways, uh, then yeah, Kant gets the win relative to Bashkar. So that's the way I would, that's how I would, the aliens would decide whether Bashkar is right in his ontological <laughs> critique, which I would side with, um, but I, I think there's that. So then, so then you have this, what is science and what kind of epistemology and what kind of knowledge does it afford? I argue that it's a unique kind of objectivist knowledge. And really it's not about matter, but ultimately about behavior. We can talk about that. And it gives rise to the tree of knowledge and periodic table of behavior say, hey, there's a behavioral naturalistic view that science grants us, okay? And it plays by certain rules like quantification, third person epistemological, perspective taking, meaning you measure shit, you watch shit, okay, from a third person, and it affords a particular picture. It's also abductive to best explanation, okay, of the general. So it tries to reduce to underlying causal structures and affords its explanatory through generalization, which basic, which also means it, it doesn't speak to things that are unreliable, unique, contingent, and ideographic, okay? And it's positioned in the, to use the Wilbur frame, the exterior as opposed to the interior as its foundation. All right, so this affords us a particular kind of epistemology to solve a particular kind of set of knowing problems. But if it is by definition generalizable and objective, it is also then by definition blind to ideographic subjective. 
That's the nature of the language game. It does not play by the rules of first person, ideographic, contextual, unique perspective taking, <laughs> okay? Um, so just like, and people uh, try to make this point, but it's been underappreciated in my view, and that much more appreciated is that science does not tell us what ought to be. It's not a good ethical system. It can, you can ask ethical questions that are true related to it, but you cannot use science to, de to then deduce from is what ought. That's an old belief system. I think virtually very few people say science is the pathway to delineating what our ethics are. People get that, okay? I don't know that people have been as clear that it is actually blind to ideographic subjectivity, okay? And you have to pair those two together. So I'm not talking about these good questions as to whether or not it can deal with subjectivity in general. John and I did a whole series on what is consciousness and encoded the concept of general subjectivity. And we're also doing the self. And we're saying that there is a science of the self architecture, but there's not a science of Greg or Bruce or Lehman. So I introduced a thing called the coin, okay, which is literally a coin I had made. And on the one side, it's the I quad coin, and it represents it's in sort of the shape of an H. You can show up a picture of it on the one side. On the other side, it has the theory of knowledge tree symbolizing the garden on it, okay? The H side of the coin represents your human identity, your unique, particular, ideographic human identity which is essentially a vacuum relative to objective natural science, okay? It doesn't have a framework for understanding that, yet that is what it is that makes our life world life quest meaningful. <laughs> it's the mere fact that I'm uniquely drinking some weird to a cup in my unique family with my unique kids doing the, the world that science only says, well, you're a primate and you live in a culture and you justify your shit this way because that's what you do. But it's like, it doesn't say the particulars, but my particulars are what makes me me. Right? So you have to, to me, we have to have an epistemology that appreciates the combination of objective, inductive, generalizable laws, recognize that that creates blind spots, but doesn't mean they're epiphenomenal or not true. It's just as blind to it any more than it says that now that we discovered science, we realize that values don't matter. <laughs> like, that's not what science says at all. It's just blind to uh, values. So the coin then represents the subjective ideographic epistemology, which we have to include as part of it. And then finally, the garden represents the collective mythopoetic narrative that takes our subjectivity, the generalized is, and then cultivates a narrative that informs is to ought. It informs values. It informs our, the sense of what we ought as a collective to value, what are our ethos in regards to that, and how do we then make sense out of the world? The core word in, in the garden is wisdom. So at whatever level, that's sort of like, that's knowledge into understanding that cultivates the good. Um, it's supposed to be oriented towards what's called the elephant sun god, which is your Mount Sophia. It's the symbol of the ultimate good, the liminal space, the concept of God that we can orient to as a collective. And, and that's what I'm suggesting is, is that there are systems of intersubjective justification. The garden represents that. Propositions that link us together, that orient us from, to build bridges from is to ought and back again, that have value-based considerations and share us together as a collective. There's the ideographic, unique perspectival perspective. Um, and there's the questions, there are hard questions about perspective and how that emerges from a science perspective. They're explanatory. There are epistemological problems that if you say you're third person, you can't see first person, that's a general. 
But then there's also the ideographic problem, which means that actually at the unique idiosyncratic level, the coin holds unique idiosyncratic subjectivity. And then finally, the tree of knowledge affords us a new coherent map of big picture, of big history, which is, I think, a very, very meta-modern view, big history. In fact, the Dave Christian, along with Brian Swim, who he liked in 2018, his most recent iteration of big history is an origin story. And he very much argues that big history in science can be told. And this is what I mean by a coherent naturalism. We can tell science in a way that doesn't create epiphenomenon for morality and subjectivity. It feeds us into and clarifies our nature, supports them in particular ways and revitalizes both the soul and its orientation to the spirit. That's what the Utah Garden sacred naturalism formulation is. Yeah, I agree that, uh, you know, the meta scientific perspective should be able to provide us with all the virtues of a great cosmic origin story in a way that's uh, rationally and ethically coherent. Mm. Uh, I made a note that I'm going to want to come back to the issue of narrative and because there's some ambiguities in it for me, but maybe we'll do that later on. Uh, first, I just want to say that in general, I agree with the notion of different fundamental classes of experiential epistemology, which mm -hmm. then become uh, general methodologies for knowledge building. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to think of it in terms of four because I tend to tease apart the objective into sort of the material energetic and the procedural behavioral ah. computational domains, but that's mm -hmm. not totally necessary all the time mm -hmm. to do that. We could, yeah. I also think in terms of different modes of ontology uh, mm -hmm. as sort of lens through different grammatical functions, the way Bruce right. and I talk about it. So for me, there's a sort of ontology of nouns and verbs and a kind yep. of adjectives and adverbs ontology. Right. So right. there ends up being an ambiguity about qualities in all of this, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. qualities could be conceived of as an ontology, which then can show up as all of those epistemologies, mm -hmm. or it can be talked about as if it was the particular attribute of the ideographic subjectivity epistemology. Right. So I'm curious about both of your takes on that, because, you know, uh, I feel even to talk about qualities as qualities is to talk about them as if they are objects, which is to imply that they can be lensed through those different epistemological options, and therefore might be some other register of existence like an ontology. Yes. Um, what do you think about that, Bruce? I was muted and I almost just held up a flower. Um, <laughs> give a, a Buddhist response here. Uh, in, in the distinction that uh, I talk about in some papers that I took from Joel Morrison between the epistemic and the ontic and epistemology and ontology. Which I love, by the way. Thank you. That we can recognize both that ontology is epistemological and the epistemic is ontic meaning that the epistemic is a real thing naturally happening in the world. We have to fold that into our, our you know, naturalism. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's really, a, to me, a, a vital and important point that you're making, Layman, that qualities, if they can be lensed, you know, from, from different perspectives and they can be approached in different ways, that there is 
you know, some uh, quasi objectivity to them, right? Mm -hmm. And that we, we need to treat them to some degree as ontic um, and not just endo. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not using your use of endo, Greg, but um, uh, Levy Bryant, where he talks about the endo structure of the object where there's only ah, these phantoms right. that appear within yeah. object. I think that, you know, there's something there to, to consider qualities um, ontically. So yeah, that's where I would come down on that. And, and definitely, yeah, that's as much as I'll say for now. Yeah, so here's um, so here's the, the for me the way the tree of knowledge from a scientific frame on this, uh, and I think it then aligns now uh, at at the level of of analysis where we are, and this is why we need an upgrade. So that I think the um, the idealism and the naturalism, uh, as I listen, for example, to uh, Bernardo and John. Um, I wish, I, you know, I was like, oh, God, I can say a lot about this and bring some of these systems together. And here's, here's how. Um, so as I thought more about the epistemic, in fact, I was on a, on a walk after seeing that, um, was it Joel Morrison, did you say, or, or who, you know, that yin yang, and I was like, oh, my God, right, the epistemic, okay, and the epistemic in the ontic, which is, um, and really what the tree of now, a way to frame the life mind and culture dimensions okay, and understand their separateness from the dimension of matter is they add an epistemic feedback layering in a particular way. I mean, I always used to talk about them as information processing within, uh, to use uh, Carl Friston's term, the Markov blanket of the membrane. So you drop information in and it processes. Of course, there's communication within the system where you can call all that information processing. And then you send out signals that are then picked up by other information processors. And it is that then information processing communication network. Another word for that potentially is epistemic, you know, uh, or broad terms of cognitive, at least. You know? uh, people are talking about cell cognition, plant cognition. Uh, the cells and plants clearly exhibit functional awareness and response. They clearly metabolize the forms out there to use prediction-based processing at some physiological, not neurobiological, but a base physiological level. And they are organized at some level to metabolize the information in addition to the matter energy things that they bring in and then guide themselves in relationship to that computationally. Okay. So I see down into cells, definitely a very easy way to talk about you know, protocognition or protosentience okay, along those lines. Uh, and um, I struggle a little bit to get into matter Okay, uh, because for me, epistemic processes, and we can talk about that, uh, when we get into, say, a, a, a water molecule or a hydrogen atom, uh, the, there's definitely a potential inside-outside, okay? uh, but the nature of uh, panpsychism or any kind of consciousness, a bit of it, metaphysically, that doesn't get me excited, but I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I think that's worth discussing, definitely think it's worth discussing. But here's where I do get excited. Okay. And this is one of the things I want to say with John that actually I think bridges idealism back into naturalism in the way maybe Bernardo Castro talked about it. So when you get, there's this whole layer of implicate order underneath the normal matter layer. Okay. So when we had Newton, we were like, oh my God, there's these things, billiard balls and clocks, you know, that's the mechanistic big stuff bouncing into stuff in very cause effect sequential ways in space time that seems very different than the world of the mind and the mental. And, and these like, what the hell is that, OK? 
Okay. And I believe that it is very different in some ways, but if you go into quantum field theory and you go use general relativity to go back to the Big Bang, what you see at the entry points, either from the very, very small into the, you know, into larger systems. So from the layer of quantum, subatomic quantum into larger systems, or you go back and you find the Big Bang, you see what I would call an energy information field at the implicate order level. Okay, so mass space time essentially collapse and you get energy information as being the foundation field as being foundational metaphysical concepts that is used. Now I, I, I'm, I'm surveying all the quantum and general relative, you know, and quantum gravity perspectives. And I think they basically all, you know, I'm just as I do the survey, have energy information as sort of foundational concepts. Some, some like Wolfram will add space in a particular way, but they do really afford us a particular vision that way. So here's my pitch. What an energy information field, okay? That's actually a lot closer to mental than, 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 than you know, matter in motion. So the idea that there's actually an implicate order beneath matter that affords itself the language of energy information field is I believe a real nice nod to idealism in a particular way. Um, and it affords us a way to see continuity, the deep continuity with nature with core ontological metaphysical concepts that do reduce a lot of the hard problem, at least in relationship to the initial concepts that we're gonna be bring to bear to understand it. Because the idea of my consciousness as an energy information field is a hell of a lot better than molecules or mechanisms bouncing up against each other in the way a clock works. So I'll, I'll throw that out there and see what you guys uh, do in relation. Yeah, okay, I agree with most of that. I think of, uh, I think Bruce said it earlier uh, that self-organizing systems are sort of amplifiers. Uh, and what are they amplifying? They're amplifying something that exists at this sort of minimalistic layer of information energy fields. And for me, information is sort of, I borrow this term from Chris Lang, an infocognition in the sense mm -hmm. that information has the ability to process information. Otherwise, mm -hmm. there wouldn't be any information. So that's something like a self-knowing function and that mm -hmm. that can be lensed in these different epistemological modes. Yep. But I'm also very interested in the um, idea that it's not just a cognitive phenomenon, that... Um, you know, Spinoza's appetition and Nietzsche's mm. will to power, that the, the fundamental layer is a fundamental layer of affect more so than mm. it is of mapping, even though you can't take the mapping constellation out of that. Right. Uh, so for me, there's, you know, more so than a knowing consciousness, there's a feeling quality totally. that goes all the way down, but it goes all the way down in self-organizing amplifications of these field effects, not in uh, composite or agglomerated entities or heaps of things. Yeah, no, well, um, I, I'll say this, at the level of mental, I 100% agree. Uh, and so if we're going sort of layering down and say, all right, so uh, I think almost everybody, I think it'd be really hard, you know, at the level of uh, animal mental, you know, birds and mammals are clearly have sentience, okay? I think that's uh, now empirically demonstrated you know, with the way that's, now we just start fall down. And certainly John and I's um, uh, agreement at the level of the animal organization. And I think that there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that, that the, that the field of sentience that emerges or what we call valence quality. Remember 
you know, we've talked about that. And that it is somehow there is a linking between the exterior uh, environment out there and the environment in here, interoception, to then organize the general e-energized motion away or toward, you know, um, which then creates a field of pleasure pain basically as, as a global broadcast function that then signals the coordination of that directed energy. Um, so for me at the animal level, absolutely. Um, it would make sense that there would be analogous functional processing down into cells. Um, I don't know if you would also see that at beneath that or what it would mean. There, to me, there is a good argument that says, well, the vast majority of what we know about cells really is just the functional awareness and response from the outside to know what empathize with what's a cell on the inside is a tricky, tricky business. But does that resonate at the level of what you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I would push a little bit farther than that, but I think that's mm -hmm. a good, you know, robust, cautious take on it. Uh -huh. And I would probably say that the, the evidence for the affect going all the way down to, let's say, a protovalence operative, mm -hmm. even in simple energetic events, mm -hmm. that would be found through a different methodological lens, which would be okay. a, a subjective microscope. Mm -hmm. But I do want to like reaffirm this idea that it's not just uh, it's not a just a primitive version of a mental recognition. Because right. we're not just totally. recognizing beings, we are inactive. So it's, it's a primitive version of a desire totally. to change or it's, benefit it, from engagements. It, it, it's really connotative more than cognitive of its base. I mean, or, or motivational energy. Definitely. Yeah. How about you, Bruce? You got thoughts about that? Yeah, I notice when you're invoking the implicate order, you know, and David Bohm. Yep. And David Bohm in exploring, you know, various, and, and he was, you know, leaning more with, with Einstein and looking for a realist mm -hmm. model ultimately of, of the cosmos. Um, but one thing he noticed was at the deepest layers, it, it really becomes, as you just stated earlier, Greg, it, it becomes almost more mind-like than billiard ball thing in motion-like when you really look at the dynamics of the, of the implicate order, he was not positing a God down there. Um, and he wasn't, you know, smuggling in theism as far as I can tell, but rather he was just noticing the way that the, you could say that the fundamental proto elements, you know, play together at the, at the implicate order is more of an informational meaning signification kind of dance than blind physical activities. And so he, he constellates in what he calls soma significance and sometimes signosomatics, mm. where soma, every, every expression of soma, every expression of form, every wavelength, every, every, every expression of form mm -hmm. carries some significance with it for its environment, for its surround, right? and for its interaction with other elements that it's it's intrinsically signifying within the field in which it appears and also that you know signosomatics basically goes the other direction where it also talks about how um, any kind of significant you know expression only shows up in a particular somatic or or, or form 
you know, form expression, a physical energy event, right? And that there's not, there's not meaning or significance apart from that field, right? Mm -hmm. So he, he makes a triangle between form or soma, uh, meaning and energy as a kind of interplay. Mm -hmm. yep. And he gives priority to meaning above the other two, above energy or form, because energy or, or matter, energy or form, can refer to each other, mm -hmm. but they can't refer to themselves, whereas meaning can refer both to form or energy, but also to itself. There is the mm -hmm. meaning of meaning, but there's not the energy of energy or the matter of matter, mm -hmm. right? Or the form of form, in a sense. So he, he saw signification um, as a, you know, kind of like the key organizing element of his, uh, of a model that he was putting forward of the implicate order and as it unfolds and explicates into, right. you know, more complex physical systems. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think there's a lot of mathematics and other complex thought that he was engaged in and mapping that out that I, you know, I know I'm not capable of doing justice to. Right. I remember, maybe it's an apocryphal account, but I, I, I believe there was a story where he was speaking about this basic model mm -hmm. to a room full of scientists, mm -hmm. and they were giving him kind of polite but blank and somewhat incredulous stares. Yeah. Um, and he decided that there was another way to explain it, and he spent about four hours just filling up chalkboards with mathematical equations, taking them step by step by step through it via his mathematical language. And at that point, it ended up in a, you know, a, a standing ovation when people got what he was pointing at through that language. Uh, whereas, you know, presenting it in a bald way, it sounds like, you know, mm -hmm. metaphysical and far out claims. <laughs> um, right. But he was able to show, you know, basically how that was coherent mathematically. Mm. I just want to add an element to that. Like if you take that bone perspective and you say, well, here's why meaning is the most basic uh, version of the components of the system. There's still an issue about like, as Wilbur calls it, fundamental versus significant, where the more fundamental something is, the less significant it is and vice versa. Right. Because you can say at the base of everything is meaning, but what are you thinking of when you think of that meaning, right? Are you thinking of the most meaning there could possibly be or the least meaning there could possibly be? So when I'm talking about, you know, protocognition and protovalence, it's really proto. It's vanishingly right. small. And at some point, not too far, you know, distant from the cell, it becomes negligible for all purposes relative to what we're thinking about so that when someone describes it as no meaning or no consciousness down there they're basically phenomenologically descriptively correct for all intents and purposes right so this would be um yeah so i totally agree with that especially in the light in the light of i do i see i thought that hey bruce i want to say that's fascinating uh, i wish uh, on my to-do list is to understand. I've certainly looked into Bohm. I appreciate his implicate uh, and explicate order. I, I like sort of the Bohmian approach to quantum mechanics, uh, how he ties in some pilot wave stuff. Um, I'm way more uh, oriented towards that than like the many worlds, uh, at least many large worlds. I can get behind many small worlds, but 
not many large roles we've done. So I, I really like that, and I love that narrative. It makes me, you know, move, bump up Bohm's, you know, my reading on him uh, more. So I appreciate that. And what you said, um, uh, I uh, layman is very much resonant with me at some level. And 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 I can do it in pretty concrete terms. I really do believe that the best way to think about phenomenological consciousness uh, will be a neurobiological energy information field kind of system. Uh, that uh, the, way, the way I think about animal consciousness at least is essentially the brain is the skin turned inward, okay? Uh, and basically what it is is that it's just a mapping, it's an internal virtualized mapping of the skin as it maps the membranics and of the uh, animal environment relation and the state of the body internally, and then it pulls that stuff together, and then it creates a field system. Uh, that's a lot of, that's hand-waving, because we still, the hard problem is, well, shit, how do you get the explanatory gap from these neurobehavioral, neurobiological fields into the experience of a rose, okay? But we could certainly say, well, these things, if it's a field thing, or whatever it is, it's going to be, say, a, a, a neurobiological electro, um, conglomerate. Well, the, the then well, what is the conglomerates made of? Well, bits of electromagnetic <laughs> force, which is exactly inside of, you know, when we look at what's going on in relationship to uh, the matter field, as it were. Yeah. I mean, the, there are those bits that somehow are again binded uh, to create a gestalt in those bits, you know, at the adjacency of that all the way down. Uh, that kind of uh, description resonates with yeah, I wanted to come back to this narrative question. Uh, and <laughs> right, so I, I like that you've got a generalized description of the function of intersubjectivity. And I, I'd like to second anybody who's been telling you you should do a more thorough sociology to go with your description yes. of psychology. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's so, definitely to do. That's <laughs> so I love the notion that the intersubjectivity is trying to frame a collective possible and cultivate a wisdom commons. And when it comes to generating a collective narrative, that's a little bit ambiguous for me. I think that's a common, but maybe not necessary function, right? That we at the level of human symbolic cultural mapping, we do this a lot, but it's also possible to envision it happening at a pre-verbal or non-verbal level. And it's certainly possible to think about the narrative that we come up with lacking fidelity to the actual processes we're engaged in together, whether because we are inadequate verbal describers or because we have incentives to use narratives for other purposes other than accuracy. So there, there's an ambiguity for me there around how central narrative creation is. It might be more epiphenomenal or a subset. Right. So for me, I basically then, you know, put a frame around, oh, the construction of justification narratives. And those things have all sorts of possible relation to the actual embodied practices in the world in lots of different ways. Um, they certainly form, if you want to then, they certainly form some sort of collective frame of reference point. You have to, you have to speak a language, for example. If, if I don't speak a language to somebody, I need a translator or else I'm going to be disconnected at certain regards. And if we're gonna build institutional social organizations that form human societies, the interface between the rules, regulations and the expectations and the values are all gonna be interconnected at some level of justification or else the system won't be able to coordinate itself. However, um, 
the explicit relationship between the narrative and what's actually happening often needs to be deeply loosened and pushed to the back. In fact, one of the things that I, a real challenge that I have is I actually try to so deeply and coherently align my narrative with action in a particular way that affords certain kinds of clarity, but it's actually, it war it's dangerous and sort of rationalistic rigidity in a way that can constrain embodiment and practice and, and living. So there are absolutely dangers in relationship to that, that I see as totally justifiable and be cautious of. <laughs> I have two responses here. One to the earlier comment by Greg, and then also to the, to the idea about narrative. First, looking back a little bit when we were talking about the implicate order and talking about, you know, meaning, fundamental meaning or significance and verging into insignificance. Uh, I pretty much aligned with that also. Uh, with Lehman, when I talk about proto, I, I also mean very, very proto or primitive. I wanted to ask both of you your thoughts on, on what is information and, you know, if we're talking about basically a fundamental information energy field, what is information? And one way that I have framed it uh, and, you know, float it with you without holding on it too tightly, but for me, at least in part, it is registration of difference, right? And so that also connects it in some level to, to feeling or affect, even if it's very, very, you know, basic. Mm -hmm. And to me, experience that has the level of presentational immediacy, that doesn't happen till later, right? So I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine seeing that as a, a later emergent in cosmic unfolding, but that at the very elemental layer, I, 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 information I can see as a, a fundamental registration of difference, which has a felt quality. And again, it's not elaborate, you know, uh, qualia of detection of the color red or something like that. It, it's, right. it's much, much more fundamental where it's almost vanishing, but that there's, uh, there's some, you know, some flavor of that, that, that then through cosmic unfolding gets amplified in the, the complexification of, of structure and form. So that's the one piece. And the other piece, which I think segues into that about narrative, I, I'm not sure I would put it as epiphenomenal. It, it really depends what you mean by narrative. You know, some people will say that the world is made of stories. Um, and I think if we do see the, the ground as an energy information field, um, that's a storying field in, in one way. And from a living systems perspective, you can look at stories as the, you know, you could say the ideographic way to participate in systems. Right. The way that we understand a system, you know, individually and actually usually the only way that impels us to meaningful action is to feel the field in story form, um, not necessarily narrative, you know, with the right. beginning and end and plot development and all that. Right. But there is this participatory detection of a field of meanings, mm -hmm. right, that you could you could play with. That, that is a way to feel into systems. 
and yeah. to respond intelligently to systems. Right. Well, um, defining information. <laughs> uh, there's a certain inability to do that in a conversation, which already has to take uh, highly structured information forms into account, right? There's any definition we could give is going to fail to grasp a more fundamental layer of information. But I think we could make some general remarks. Yep. Uh, I like your notion of difference, right? That's how I think of the the fundamental sort of syntax of reality is being composed of adjacencies, which is, you know, a slightly offset relationship between two things. That's a differential. So that's the primitive metaphysical mode of ontology. And it's dynamic. It somehow processes itself. And so when I think of information, I think of something like, like I've mentioned Christopher Lang and the notion of infocognitive self-processing whatever this stuff is whatever the fundamental non-spatial non-temporal sub-architecture of reality is it has to be able to work with itself somehow and i think that working with has a kind of what we could describe as a subjective component where it's yep. recognizing itself and so differences are being inscribed or registered by other differences so i i, I agree with that when it comes to storytelling, I would make the same point I made earlier that there's proto storytelling and it's very proto, right? So when I'm thinking of the intersubjective activity, yes, locally, meaning in uh, human history and civilization, it is a very frequent local regularity of high use. However, bees, Neanderthals and uh, thoughtless Taoist dancers can all collaborate in an intersubjective, meaningful production without any storytelling in any of the conventional uh, surface level of the mind symbolic indicator ways. So I just want to like, it's a very broad category of cooperation to produce meaning of which only some of it sounds like people saying stories to each other. Yeah, totally. Um, so for me, the information, I divide the information up in the following kind of uh, angles. So, so one is there are information theoretic approaches to the universe itself. Uh, some people take in quantum bit uh, and quantum information approaches. They, you can uh, potentially transform what to think about the universe in terms of bits instead of its. In fact, there's a book um, from uh, it to bit, uh, which is a, a John Wheeler afforded that. Uh, truism or aphorism or way of thinking about the world. Um, so then you basically, then instead of thinking about matter, you think about it in terms of holding a particular information space that then as an indicator of something, indicator of difference. Uh, string theorists will talk about the core particles as messenger particles that communicate a force, for example. Um, there's a law of conservation of information that's basically sort of like, okay, um, all action is intertwined in a particular way. And this actually gets into sort of uh, when we reduce time out of the equation of the fundamental quantum world, it's basically there, there's a, a, a symmetry of information that then goes past and present and gives at least some people the impression of a block universe uh, kinds of notion. So um, it's essentially from it to bit, that's one version of the universe. I, I will sometimes think then about like the, um, energy information singularity at the Big Bang. There's the whole 
energy and then all the photon, gluon, boson parts, okay, the digits uh, that make up that C. So that's, that's another way on that angle. So then, then you move from there to uh, Claude Shannon's information theoretic view, um, which then cut and connects pretty closely to entropy, <clears throat> the idea of disorder, uh, signaling and messaging in relationship to the reduction of uh, uncertainty. Um, so how to predict in relationship to what's a message that reduces your uncertainty. So that requires you to understand what the complexity of the possible states are, how you would learn about those possible states, how you create algorithmic information and compress those states and then reduce and reconstruct them. That's what Claude Shannon was really working on in his um, communication and information work at Bell Labs. and. The, the you know sort of the Newton of of uh, information theory as a quantifiable uh, articulation of of uh, reduction of uncertainty. Um, so that's another. So we you know th there's the physical it uh, to bit kind of for version. Uh, there's the information theoretic approach that Claude Shannon brings to bear. Um, then there's semantics and semiotics. Um, and this is really, to me, this is what the jump is from matter to life in terms of that uh, what you see in life is an organized information processing uh, thing that has a way to metabolize form and use it to decipher and predict. Uh, and that goes um, certainly right underneath life. There may be some material things that have parts of that, but that goes go cl close to zero, at least in my view, or at least when that takes off, that is the qualitative epistemic shifting system that gives you sort of semiotics uh, in relation. And that is also then structured as another meaning of the word information as information processing, whereby the semantic structure has an input function that translates the form, says, okay, here's the indicator. You have a membrane out here. You get a light, a photon hits you, but then that photon indicates certain kinds of things that then gets stored and computationally can then be computationally referenced in a particular type of representation. You can talk about modeling, representation, et cetera, but whatever, you can store it in memory, you can access it, you can form computations on it and then utilize that to guide output. So the input computational recursivity and output is the information processing meaning. And that again is, you can see analogies in relationship to it and especially if you start defining matter in terms of bits, but at the same time, the, 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 it's a press to start saying, well, matter storing information, it's remembering, it's computing and acting accordingly. That's very hard. But cells, I mean, that's exactly uh, the way now for complex adaptive systems theorists, at least, that is exactly the way they describe cells. Um, so to me, you know, it, it uh, you know, from it to bit, the information theoretic, the semantic semiotics notion and information processing, uh, those are, uh, those are the ways I appreciate, uh, uh, you know, approach that concept. It's foundational. And so you say, well, foundational concepts are slippery. Energy, I would argue, is also a kind of slippery concept. It has a little bit more immediacy in terms of the capacity to do work um, and its relationship with entropy. Um, but when I say the energy, you know, the singularities and energy singularity, a lot of physicists immediately say that's kind of bullshit because energy is a reference for a particular kind of quantity. And then you have to specify what kind of quantity it is. Uh, other physicists are actually totally fine with that. So physicists, um, I've talked to a lot of physicists, half of them are like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And half of them are, that's a bad conception of what energy is. So, <laughs> so both those concepts are, as when you get to foundational, they're unbelievably. So anyway, I'm sorry, rambled on there a bit of it. But anyway. I'm talking to a physicist tomorrow, so I'll ask him.
Ah, yes. His take is... <laughs> See if he likes energy singularity as the beginning, uh, the unified force field uh, that, uh, that emerges uh, at, you know, time, plonk time one. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, also, you know, for the slipperiness of information or energy, and just I was going to throw in the remark that David Bohm also does that when, his, when he's discussing meaning, is that he wants to leave meaning undefined, at least at the outset, because you know, you're always going to find deeper layers to it. Better to let the meaning of meaning emerge through the explanation and the exploration, I mean, rather than trying to posit some fixed definition. Um, so there is an elemental quality to it. Um, and yeah, uh, since part of this is, you know, an exploration of the, the three, you know, elements of your model, Greg, um, I want to know if there's, you know, in, in terms of looking towards the sacred naturalism or, or Sophianic naturalism, if there's more that you wanted to kind of unpack about um, the steps from the, you know, the tree uh, to the coin, to the garden. I, I mean, I, I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about right now then is to, and I'd love to run this by you guys, is see how it's not meant to be completely comprehensive because there are transactional elements, as you both know, in relation that would be more prepositional or um, pragmatic. Um, but I do believe that the subjective phenomenological, objective scientific, and intersubjective sort of mythopoetic ethic, um, with one being sort of a collective system of justification, at least at some level, coordinating, but not, you know, we'll take Ian McGilchrist and say, yeah, a lot of what the uh, modernity is try to force the propositional knowing system. We want to be careful about that and actually free ourselves. We're looking for a holistic system. But nonetheless, uh, the, the Utah says, hey, we need to introduce and maintain uh, linguistically mediated justification narratives as a construct uh, that's, uh, that's underdeveloped in many other systems, where it comes from, how it operates, and that it is a hyper object uh, and a framing that we can uh, utilize with effectiveness. And we are trying to create part of the ultimate task we live under is an is-ought system of narration. Uh, and I actually believe the metamodern system is really a way too often people have been trapped inside their systems of justification. We actually need to get adjacent to them and cultivate psychologies and, and ways of being and cultures that say, oh yeah, this is my system of justification, but that's, you know, there it is. Could have been a lot of other shit. <laughs> you know, we don't want to act as though that is the reality. That's a particular map of reality that emerged in a particular time and culture, and we should be rooted in it in terms of our histories so because it shapes us, but not attached to it as if that's the only ontological, epistemological way of being in the world. Um, so so my my feeling uh, and and is is there a way to help people? get clear right up front, say, hey, you know, let's be clear that to, you know, make, I am not, I'm, I don't have a, a way of saying, here's the foundational path to the unmediated capital T absolute truth. Let's start there. <laughs> it's a theory of knowledge, not a, not a theory of truth. I don't know, you know, I'm pretty skeptical of people that have unmediated versions of what the absolute foundational reality is, irrespective of what anybody says. So I wanna then say, actually, Truth claims exist in particular frames that you have to metaphysically frame to make sense out of it. And then I'm saying, actually, we can metaphysically frame three different onto-epistemological arenas. You know? One is science. That's going to tell us a particular thing, make particular truth claims. One is the 
soul, and I mean that yourself uniquely from your vantage point, okay? Uh, and one is ethical narrative on the, on the, and, and the, the way in which cultures make sense out of their identity, bring people together about what is valued and what is good. And, and that is not new, obviously, if you go to Wilbur, I mean, the good, the true, the beautiful, the I, the it, the we, those are all old things. But the tree coin and garden, I am at least positioning that they afford a new framing on that. The interrelations of those can be much more coherent. Um, we can create a much more effective flow grounded in a more sophisticated map of big history on the science side. Clarify what it can and can't say relative to ideographic and morality and afford particular perspectives. Indeed, this is what I had to deal with as an integrative psychotherapist. It's like, well, what's the collective wisdom? Who are you humanistically, the, soul, the, the coin soul of the person? What is science? And, you know, I'm trying to say, hey, can, does the tree coin and garden afford a way to enter the system that's useful? Uh, does it afford a way to help people be aware of different epistemological framings? And then does it afford people a way to see a way that could be more coherently achieved uh, relations between those points? Well, yeah, I, I love your model and I want to come back to its usefulness in those areas. I, first, I want to just say one more thing about information, mm. which is, and I love that you brought up Shannon and I've got Wolfram in my mind. And so mm -hmm. I realize I often think about information as a relationship between predictability and unpredictability between computations. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's also a way of saying that we're looking at relationships between patterns or between levels of patterns. Like when Shannon yes. makes information and entropy almost the same thing, yep. we're, we're looking at entropy, not really as disorder, but the number of different ways that one level of the system can be that makes no difference to another level totally. of the system. So it's a, there's a comparative element. And when we say in formation, we're implying mm. that something is in the same form as something else. So there's this mm. comparative element and uh, comparison is an adjacency. <laughs> yes, love that. So, yeah. Now, uh, when it comes to like how useful a really great system can be <laughs> or a really great narrative, I'm, I think they're necessary. They're useful in society. They're certainly uh, spontaneous outgrowths of minds like ours because we feel we have to keep doing this all the time in order to organize what we're working on. So maybe that <laughs> yeah. would be useful to other people as well. Right. Um, at the same time, like with my slight wariness around narratives, mm -hmm. I would say in terms of uh, creating a contemporary, useful, meta-modern ethic, mm -hmm. we have to be wary about leaning too much into giving people the new narrative or the new right. story for them to sign on to versus promulgating the skill sets necessary to have engagements out of which narratives emerge. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, no, it's a huge difference. And I get, and I, and um, it, one of the things that's both a real value and a real trouble is just getting that for me, getting that right. And part of the reason it is that I struggle with that is both a positive and a negative of a system, I think, is that it's also anchored into crystal clear diagnoses of errors in past systems, okay? So, and this is how I look at other systems, like, well, okay, there are all these valuable systems, and I really do believe the metamodern sensibility of integrated pluralism, if we can cultivate people's capacity to build their own systems, 
that are meaningful to them and then have those pluralistic interrelated systems afford the opportunity for them to become together in a meaningful way. We will have enlightened individuals who climb their own, in their own word, their own coin or spirit object and allow them to see the world in a particular way. And if we can coordinate that, that integrated pluralistic thing that you, I think you would have rich, rich, deep connections with individuals who, who internally have found their way in a particular way. And that's a, an, any humanistic, you know, Rogerian person would tell you, and I certainly identify in that way, that's a beautiful thing, you know? My, I also, my analytic and theoretical, you know, physicist head is like, well, actually people made mistakes and I fixed them. <laughs> <laughs> and so here, I wanna tell you what the mistakes are, here's the fix them. And then once you actually fix them, then this system works. <laughs> So, so there, and that is not, so that's a, I find that to be an interesting dynamic because there is aspects of this that are very analytic and deductive in that regard, or at least at an argumentative level. And I think maybe mathematically I'm playing around with some things that are interesting. Um, but then there is the other invitation of philosophy of living that is, that should just infuse with all these other ways of being in a particular world and how to catch that line. I really appreciate you brought that up, Lane. It's a very, very important framing. Michael Dowd reminds us that science teaches us to tell the story of the changing story. Right? And so that it really is, in a way, teaching us the kind of skill set that I think Lehman is talking about, that is of, of storying, but holding the stories lightly, in a sense, and, uh, and recognizing that uh, our, our different approaches are, are going to be you know, subject to change. How do you then hold what the function of narrative is? You know, that's something that I'm doing a series on TSK and, and TSK kind of mm, explores yes. that too. You know, are we giving a, a model that's basically the overarching container in which we live or is narrative maybe serving a function to prompt uh, inquiry and prompt relational exploration um, where it, it doesn't it doesn't congeal into a, a fixed all-containing um, you know holon or assholon as we would put it in, in <laughs> integral language <laughs> I've not heard that I love that yeah. <laughs> amen to that right there's a uh, you know, a, a layered complexification take on narrative, right? Like at a very simple level, our perception is already a narrative, right? It's a simplification of the world for usefulness, yep. right? So then we get up to the point where we can make images and then make speech symbols abstractly to get these narratives together. And all of these levels are levels where things are not just more abstract, but there's also more of them. Right. So you get up to a you've got a Bible, <laughs> you've got one story for your people. But at yep. the next meta level of sophistication, you're like, oh, my God, there's a bunch of Bibles. So then you go, oh, my God, there's yeah. a bunch of things that might just as well count as Bibles. So right. at each stage, the number, the proliferation of the narratives and the flexibility of the narrative seems to be increasing. So it can go sort of very far down and very far up. But as we try to go further Yep. socially and personally, we have to hold it in a lighter, more flexible, more multifarious way. 100% agree with that. In fact, this is why, uh, 
you know, I think I've lost sight of that at sometimes and some of the grandiosity of plan, uh, uh, you know, visions. Oh my God, I solved the problem. <laughs> oh no, and then it's like, no, you solved a problem. And in fact, actually I will situate my own um, very much 21st century American clinical psychologists, okay? So the unified theory completely comes out of a particular narrative justification structure uh, that evolved in, in a particular place that was trying to take particular boxing epistemological frames and jam them in a particular place. Um, and then it was the error of doing that. Yogi didn't, the yogic scientists didn't frame it this way. So the, everything that emerged in relation uh, in terms of, hey, here's the solution is actually contextualized by the system of justification that came before and limited by that in that regard. Uh, and so then you're like, oh yes, as a 21st century American clinical psychologist unified frame, <laughs> which you know that's a, you know that's okay. <laughs> I'm still happy with it, you know. But at the level of you know frames and context and emergence and possibility and the changing narrative of well, as soon as you get a particular piece, everything the adjacent possible opens up, and obviously uh, the emerging wave of whatever say the future will be and the intersection with all these other past and you know i just did a, a we're releasing the alexander bard conversation tomorrow you know bard and zoroastrianism and the silk road he's like ah the goddamn greeks they didn't figure out anything oh that we already knew all that shit and zoroastrian silk road stuff so what and i'm just like bard love you and you know that's a good uh, reminder at least speaking for myself of nice humility and contextualization and smallness relative to the potential and that is definitely something that i think uh that is both that is a truth that all of us, uh, you know, can I hope uh, in a mature way appreciate. I'm really enjoying your exploration into the elusive eye, mm. and um, it was a it was a great follow up to the untangling the world knot. Both of those are really just great conversations, and I, this may or may not be too much of a a jump or a tangent, but it's just on my mind here. Listening to you and John talk, um, and we mentioned Bohm earlier. Are you familiar with his experiment called the, the Rhea mode? I'm not. He basically experimented with a different form of language. He was uh, concerned that the way that we tell these stories about the world especially at the way that they're set up uh, in, in you know, certain of our prominent grammars, yep. it divides and fragments in a way that's not really helpful. Beautiful. Um, and so he wanted to look at different ways of approaching it. And, you know, I think there's debate around how much influence language has on the shaping of perception. I feel that there's some because I've experimented with it, but I don't think oh, it's definitely. it's it's right. not, you know, absolute or, you know, determinative, totally weak, determinative. Weak superior wharf, you know. Yeah, weak exactly. Superior weak superior wharf. <laughs> but one of the things that he talks about in explaining the Rhea mode is he he uses verbs in a different way and wants to put verbs a little bit more forward uh, to invite more of a process participatory orientation and general habit of thinking and he plays with words like relevance he divides it up into levate and then relevate and mm -hmm. describes this whole process of kind of 
lifting up a distinction and then folding the distinction back. And mm -hmm. he contextualizes it in a bunch of different verbs that describe the processes basically of perception and world building mm -hmm. and um, refinement of uh, information processing, um, mm -hmm. the fueling of inquiry. So he's built up a whole kind of architecture of, of you know, playful verbal forms. Right. And that just stands out to me when I listen to you and John exploring mm -hmm. in the intersection of your, you talk and his uh, recursive relevance realization um, that maybe that language be, would be useful for pulling out some of the dynamics that you are describing in the basically the emergence of different orders of, of yep. being and the formation of the self from self-referencing systems to a self. <laughs> totally. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, what was released recently, like episode seven or whatever. So I think we just finished maybe 10 um, you know, in terms of, so the last two episodes were I was in the lead and I was taking uh, John and Christopher through um, the internal. And now that I've internalized John's uh, description, uh, then I put on my clinical hat uh, and I walk them through. Um, whereas in, in Tangling the World Not, I took recursive relevance, realization of the problem of consciousness, and I looked at it through the left side of the uh, theory of knowledge tree, the, the unified theory of psychology. Then we looked at this through the unified approach lens. And in particular, then how his model of the self um, corresponds to what I would call the experiential self uh, relative to the private narrator. And then the architecture of character functioning. Um, and then his recursive relevance realization really becoming the foundational functional thread, uh, the neurocognitive functional thread and then my analysis of character functioning and putting in these puzzle pieces in relation. Uh, I think it popped pretty nicely, pretty similar to what happened with the world not, um, and showing then that the, the, once again, John's model of recursive relevance realization and now into the self uh, fills in the cognitive science uh, that I was, I had sort of this outside thing. He has this inside, inside take uh, with much more refinement uh, to the neurocognitive processes that's operative. But then now, once we take that, then we can come back out and say, oh, well, this is the puzzle pieces that I put together, say, from a clinical angle. And now we can see uh, those elements. And, uh, and, and this gets right into our conversation, because this is what we were talking about. In fact, uh, the most recent uh, uh, world that I talked about a clinical case that I had, a very suicidal woman, uh, very miserable, almost threw herself off a bridge, was brought in, um, had tried to kill herself a couple of different times. And, uh, you know, she had a narrative, um, and I want to be careful, not be unbelievably critical, but John expressed his frustration. You know, she'd been hospitalized after a suicide and was just basically given a depressive disease diagnosis and said, here, take these uh, antidepressants with virtually no therapy whatsoever. She had a post-traumatic rape history. She had a clearly, in my estimation, um, and what's called an emerging avoidant personality. She was young enough, so I'd be hesitant to give it to her, but certainly had social phobia. Um, and an internalized critic uh, that had basically created between the narrator, her self-narrative and her felt sense of being were basically at war with each other. Um, and they reduced it to then a neurobiological malfunction and uh, explain the outcome in relationship to a pill, which for her case was unbelievably um, ineffective and alienating, just drove her further into a place. 
And so my point to John, which he then he got activated by that story. And then there's the whole point of what we're trying to do is the model of self that John brings from cognitive science and then bridging it over to the clinical angle, which then affords, yes, there's maladaptive, there are different parts of the self. They can speak together with coherent integration in particular ways, or they can speak together in very, very hostile and like an internal internal family that hates itself. Okay. Uh, so to get to Bohm's point, the way we talk about ourselves, the way we relate is absolutely crucial to flow, uh, to flow with flexible adaptiveness as opposed to rigid defensiveness is absolutely key. And then finally, if we can build a cognitive science into clinical psychology model, and then Christopher goes last with this sort of ex existential implication about what we are and the kind of societies that will be conducive, this really is exactly what we're after here. We're really after, there's a huge opportunity within a naturalistic framework to tell stories that have much more affordance to fill our souls and orient our collective narrative in much more relationally filling ways and ways that are much more conducive to nature um, and, uh, and aligning with the concept of God. <laughs> yeah, for me, there's a, there's a real importance to the notion of enriching through um, pluralizing through discovering multiples where we previously had singulars, mm. right? And so that's a little bit like when Bruce was talking about even deconstructing words like relevance. That, right. That's not only a tool of investigation, it duplicates the form of growth that's going on in that person, which is they're finding an intra-relationality within, right. within the psyche, within each piece of information. So now they have several components where previously they had one, and it becomes something like, you know, this is an aspect of Cantor's continuum problem, right? There's mm -hmm. twice as many halves as there are whole numbers. <laughs> so where do you put that? Where does that extra right, infinity right. go? Right? right? It wraps around the outside into a new, bigger right. infinity. A hotel of infinities. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on board with all that. Um, and I want to I want to bring this back around a little bit toward the uh, toward ecological ethics. Uh, because, you know, for me, the, you know, thinking as a classicist and a Nietzschean, <laughs> the Dionysian spirit, right. which is the spirit of the woods, the spirit yeah. of the forest, it has these two aspects. It has the tree of knowledge, right? The mm -hmm. genetic tree, the tree of the sciences, all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff as naturalism, the description mm -hmm. of the natural world. But right. then there's this other side, which is the Dionysians out in the forest, <laughs> Right. <laughs> which right. is the how we experience the natural how we live the ecological how we get together around those things so the yeah. the sacredness of actually breathing fresh air and being around trees and having the right gut bacteria and putting your bare feet in the soil and totally. i think we've got to constantly remind ourselves that that's a really huge central piece of all of this and emotionally uh, the root of where the ethics of sacred right. naturalism come from I love that. A couple of, I try to, so, you know, I walk every day basically. Um, and, and now when I step outside my door, I'm, I'm, we, have a, we have a nice view. Um, and I just look out at the landscape, you know, and I just sit there and I take a deep breath and internalize the landscape. I was not something I used to do. Um, but basically, and, and the walking, I try to create a rhythm that at least is an imaginal rhythm of cycle in in the world um and my connection to the my dog at that point is sort of a non-verbal 
you know, guide in relation to that. So, and when I think about meta-modernity from especially Lenny Rachel Anderson's perspective, it starts with the oral indigenous um, and, and my own, I'll speak for myself then, my own um, isolation from nature is a, is a shortcoming and a weakness um, that's, that I think speaks to some of the real ills of modernity that need to be uh, addressed. So I, I love that perspective. I just need to do more of it. <laughs> there was a practice I used to do regularly in India when mm -hmm. I lived at the Krishnamurti school there in, in Rajgad Varanasi. There's some lovely trails to wander that uh, went down by the, the Ganges River and the confluence of the Ganges with the Varuna River. And right there was a road that the Buddha himself walked um, after his enlightenment experience over to Sarnath, where he gave his first sermon. So I was lucky to live in a little cabin right at that spot and uh, used to go out and, and take walks. But I just, when you say you, you stand there and you breathe in the landscape, and I think, you know, on the effective side, as well as the storytelling side, but just on the effective side, that's so important. And one of my practices at the time was when I would go out and walk, I would start it with the phrase, the sky is my skull. And then I would just feel, feel that. And then I would try to just merge my body with where I was so that my body became transparent to the movement of the trees and the grasses and, and whatever was going on. And I could begin to feel harmonies and synchronizations between movements in my body and in the kind of the larger um, dance of that world around me. And it's just, it was for me such a nourishing practice to do that. Yeah, I love that um, skull notion, Bruce. I, yeah, I grew up that's... really immersed in Norse mythology. And one of the things they have there is this fundamental character of Ymir, the frost giant, before all the species and how the gods rose up and killed him and fashioned his body into the universe. And the dome mm. of heaven is his skull, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, wow. And those sort of mythopoetic languagings, you know, give us some very primal examples of what it would be like for our experience of ourselves to be merged with the ecosystem and the natural universe generally. So I think those are very powerful, profound narratives that anchor us. And to me, they fit into a, uh, a generalized set of eco-anthropic mappings, mm. right? Which can happen in all the different valences. So mm -hmm. one valence is, can I describe the natural world? Mm -hmm. One valence is, can I smell the flowers? Can I feel the earth, right? I have emotional and mental and physical, and we have if we get better computer models of the climate and we can make fractals like nature appear within our electronic devices, mm. we can become more individually and collectively informed by what nature is actually doing in the degree to which we can do this. Do we, you know, sociologically and technologically restructure our cities around more organic and sustainable principles. All these things are ways of changing our mapping to be more full of the information from nature's patterns and I think when we do that, we generate the experience that we point to as naturalness as yeah. distinct from whatever shit nature happens to be doing for good or evil. <laughs> totally. Totally. I love that, Layman. Uh, because it, it speaks to, you know, cultivating in us a, a form relationship 
you know, that, that, that's deep and profound, uh, and I think quite necessarily corrective relative to the, say, the last several hundred years of, of societies, at least Western society and civilization. I think this is a really, really key point for um, what would be fulfilling uh, the, and revitalizing the soul and spirit. From the point of view of a contemporary intellectual white male. <laughs> right, right. Who, 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 who recognizes the under uh, the, 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 the developmental line of cognitive skill development in a particular way, of propositional knowing in a particular way, of situating myself in a technological bu bubble with an intuition of a being above nature and separate from it. All of that's true. That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's, and it, that's that, why that... it feels. Uh, that recognition doesn't reduce any of the utility or joy of any of the things we're discussing. <laughs> no, no, but, the, but, it, but it's just, un, it's an underdeveloped line to use yeah. a, a Wilberian frame of reference. It's, it's a grossly underdeveloped line of modernity uh, and even post-modernity in many ways. Um, and so it's, that's certainly the way I feel in my own uh, coin perspective of my living. <laughs> Beautiful. It feels like this is a, a good rounding point for our conversation. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. I'm all right. I feel like we're, I agree. Rounded is a good term for that. I don't want to say summed up because there's still lots more to say, but rounded out is pretty good. Uh, and I'd like to also touch in on a, like an idiosyncratic emotional thing, which I think maybe we all share a little bit is uh, how interesting it is to hear other people use your phraseology, mm. right? Like, uh, I mean, for Greg to hear us talking about you talk and using his different yeah. models and the coin. And for me, you know, I remember the day I was walking at the park trying to solve the problem of the metaphysics implied by post metaphysics. And I saw, I heard the word adjacency and now I hear you guys, you guys both use it. Yeah. I talked to Bard, Bard is using it. I'm like, this is really weird. How did they get my word? It's out there now. Right. That's <laughs> totally true. <laughs> That is, yeah. I, you know, that's really, I mean, yeah, go ahead, Bruce. Are you gonna say Probably same thing as you is that, yeah, I've, I've had that experience too. And if people are referring to Mount Sophia or grammars or, or prepositional, it's like, cool, it's catching on. That's great. Right. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I mean, and, and I both, you know, the, the grammar of the Sophia and the adjacency are definitely now you know, the, the, like I had all these bricks, but I didn't have good mortar to jam shit in there. And you guys gave me the mortar to create a brick bricks. So I see the mortar a lot more and the pre prepositional relations between them. And uh, I deeply appreciate uh, that and, and feel also honored that you can that, that you can hear the echoes of the formulations that I've developed in, in others as well. So and that and that, uh, you know, the blending of that and the feeling of the blend that feels it like it's like stronger and healthier and complementary. Well, that's, that's very hopeful to me because that's the emerging kind of collective intelligence that suggests that we're on. I, I really love and admire what we're capable of doing conversationally and intellectually uh, and the way we're able to bring that together with enjoyment. And I have just a, just a very positive, respectful, sweet feeling about both of you. So thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> Echo back at your brothers very much so yeah this contactfulness tact having the same inner root as mm. integrity or integral mm. um is church for me so thanks both of you <laughs> well hey we open with amen <laughs> I, li I like to i like to end where we opened is a great way of doing that so okay, thank you